Hi everyone, Andrew here. Soon, it will be time to start a new book on Send Me to Sleep, and we want you to help us decide what to read. Follow the link in the episode show notes and submit your vote. Thanks a lot. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 29-31 to 31 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapters, Alexei Alexandrovich witnessed his wife's infatuation with Vronsky firsthand. In tonight's story, Anna confesses her feelings towards Vronsky. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy. And your breath soften. As we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 29 Everyone was loudly expressing disapprobation. Everyone was repeating a phrase someone had uttered. The lions and the gladiators will be the next thing. And everyone was feeling horrified, so that when Vronsky fell to the ground and Anna moaned aloud, there was nothing very out of the way in it. But afterwards, a change came over Anna's face, which really was beyond decorum. She utterly lost her head. She began fluttering like a caged bird. At one moment, she would have got up and moved away. At the next, turned to Betsy. Let us go. Let us go, she said. But Betsy did not hear her. She was bending down, talking to a general who had come up to her. Alexei Alexandrovich went up to Anna and courteously offered her his arm. Let us go, if you like, he said in French. But Anna was listening to the general and did not notice her husband. He's broken his leg too, so they say, the general was saying. This is beyond everything. Without answering her husband, Anna lifted her opera glass and gazed towards the place where Vronsky had fallen, but it was so far off 
and there was such a crowd of people about it that she could make out nothing. She laid down the opera glass and would have moved away, but at that moment an officer galloped up and made some announcement to the Tsar. Anna craned forward, listening. Steva, Steva, she cried to her brother. But her brother did not hear her. Again, she would have moved away. Once more, I offer you my arm if you want to be going, said Alexei Alexandrovich, reaching towards her hand. She drew back from him with aversion, and without looking in his face, answered, No, no, let me be, I'll stay. She saw now that from the place of Vronsky's accident, an officer was running across the course towards the pavilion. Betsy waved her handkerchief to him. The officer brought the news that the rider was not killed, but the horse had broken its back. On hearing this, Anna sat down hurriedly and hid her face in her fan. Alexei Alexandrovich saw that she was weeping and could not control her tears, nor even the sobs that were shaking her bosom. Alexei Alexandrovich stood so as to screen her, giving her time to recover herself. For the third time, I offer you my arm, he said to her after a little time, turning to her. Anna gazed at him and did not know what to say. Princess Betsy came to her rescue. No, Alexei Alexandrovich, I brought Anna, and I promised to take her home, put in Betsy. Excuse me, princess, he said, smiling courteously, but looking at her very firmly in the face. But I see that Anna's not very well, and I wish her to come home with me. Anna looked about her in a frightened way got up submissively and laid her hand on her husband's arm. I'll send to him and find out and let you know, Betsy whispered to her. As they left the pavilion, Alexei Alexandrovich, as always, talked to those he met, and Anna had, as always, to talk and answer but she was utterly beside herself and moved hanging on her husband's arm as though it were a dream. Is he killed or not? Is it true? Will he come or not? Shall I see him today? She was thinking. She took her seat in her husband's carriage in silence, and in silence drove out of the crowd of carriages. In spite of all he had seen, Alexei Alexandrovich still did not allow himself to consider his wife's real condition. He merely saw the outward symptoms. 
he saw that she was behaving unbecomingly and considered it his duty to tell her so. But it was very difficult for him not to say more, to tell her nothing but that. He opened his mouth to tell her she had behaved unbecomingly, but he could not help saying something utterly different. What an inclination we all have, though, for these cruel spectacles, he said. I observe. Eh? I don't understand, said Anna contemptuously. He was offended, and at once began to say what he had meant to say. I am obliged to tell you, he began. So now we are to have it out, she thought, and she felt frightened. I am obliged to tell you that your behavior has been unbecoming today, he said to her in French. In what way has my behavior been unbecoming, she said aloud, turning her head swiftly and looking him straight in the face not with the bright expression that seemed covering something, but with a look of determination under which she concealed with difficulty the dismay she was feeling. Mind, he said, pointing to the open window opposite the coachman. He got up and pulled up the window. What did you consider unbecoming? she repeated. The despair you are unable to conceal at the accident to one of the riders. He waited for her to answer, but she was silent, looking straight before her. I have already begged you so to conduct yourself in society that even malicious tongues can find nothing to say against you. There was a time when I spoke of your inward attitude, but I am not speaking of that now. Now I speak only of your external attitude. You have behaved improperly, and I would wish it not to occur again. She did not hear half of what he was saying. She felt panic-stricken before him and was thinking whether it was true that Vronsky was not killed. Was it of him that they were speaking when they said the rider was unhurt, but the horse had broken its back? She merely smiled with a pretense of irony when he finished, and made no reply, because she had not heard what he'd said. Alexei Alexandrovich had begun to speak boldly, but as he realized plainly what he was speaking of, the dismay she was feeling infected him too. He saw the smile, and a strange misapprehension came over him. She is smiling at my suspicions. Yes, she will tell me directly what she told me before that there is no foundation for my suspicions. That is absurd. At that moment, when the revelation of everything was hanging over him, there was nothing he expected so much as that she would answer mockingly as before 
that his suspicions were absurd and utterly groundless. So terrible to him was what he knew, that now he was ready to believe anything. But the expression of her face, scared and gloomy, did not now promise even deception. Possibly I was mistaken, said he. If so, I beg your pardon. No, you were not mistaken, she said deliberately, looking desperately into his cold face. You were not mistaken. I was, and I could not help being in despair. I hear you, but I am thinking of him. I love him. I am his mistress. I can't bear you. I'm afraid of you. And I hate you. You can do what you like to me. And dropping back into the corner of the carriage, she broke into sobs, hiding her face in her hands. Alexei Alexandrovich did not stir and kept looking straight before him. But his whole face suddenly bore the solemn rigidity of the dead, and his expression did not change during the whole time of the drive home. On reaching the house, he turned his head to her, still with the same expression. Very well, but I expect a strict observance of the external forms of propriety till such time, his voice shook, as I may take measures to secure my honour and communicate them to you. He got out first and helped her to get out. Before the servants, he pressed her hand, took his seat in the carriage and drove back to Petersburg. Immediately afterwards, a footman came from Princess Betsy and brought Anna a note. I sent to Alexei to find out how he is, and he writes me he is quite well and unhurt, but in despair. So he will be here, she thought. What a good thing I told him. She glanced at her watch. She had still three hours to wait, and the memories of their last meeting set her blood in flame. My God, how light it is. It's dreadful, but I do love to see his face, and I do love this fantastic light. My husband. Oh, yes. Well, thank God. Everything's over with him. Chapter 30 In the little German watering place to which the Shabatskys had betaken themselves, as in all places indeed where people are gathered together, the usual process, as it were, of the crystallization of society went on, assigning to each member of that society a definitive 
an unalterable place. Just as the particle of water in frost, definitely and unalterably, takes the special form of the crystal of snow, so each new person that arrived at the springs was at once placed in his special place. First, Shabatsky, Samant Gamlin und Tokta, by the apartments they took, and from their name and from the friends they made, were immediately crystallized into a definite place marked out for them. There was visiting the watering place that year, a real German firstin, in consequence of which the crystallizing process went on more vigorously than ever. Princess Shabatskyaya wished, above everything else, to present her daughter to this German princess, and the day after their arrival, she duly performed this rite. Kitty made a low and graceful curtsy in the very simple, that is to say, very elegant frock that had been ordered her from Paris. The German princess said, I hope the roses will soon come back to this pretty little face. And for the Shabatskys, certain definite lines of existence were at once laid down, from which there was no departing. The Shabatskys made the acquaintance too of the family of an English lady, somebody, and of a German countess and her son, wounded in the last war, and of a learned Swede, and of M. Kanat and his sister. But yet inevitably, the Shabatskys were thrown most into the society of a Moscow lady, Maria Yevgenyevka Rishtasheva, and her daughter, whom Kitty disliked, because she had fallen ill, like herself, over a love affair, and a Moscow colonel, whom Kitty had known from childhood, and always seen in uniform and epaulets, and who now, with his little eyes and his open neck and flowered cravat, was uncommonly ridiculous and tedious, because there was no getting rid of him. When all this was so firmly established, Kitty began to be very much bored, especially as the prince went away to Carlsbad and she was left alone with her mother. She took no interest in the people she knew, feeling that nothing fresh would come of them. Her chief mental interest in the watering place consisted in watching and making theories about the people she did not know. It was characteristic of Kitty that she always imagined everything in people in the most favourable light possible, especially so in those she did not know. And now, as she made surmises as to who people were, what were their relations to one another, and what they were like, Kitty endowed them with the most marvellous and noble characters and found confirmation of her idea in her observations. Of these people, 
the one that attracted her most was a Russian girl who had come to the watering place with a disabled Russian lady, Madame Stahl, as everyone called her. Madame Stahl belonged to the highest society, but she was so ill that she could not walk and only on especially fine days made her appearance at the springs in a disabled carriage. But it was not so much from ill health as from pride, so Princess Shabatskyaya interpreted it that Madame Stahl had not made the acquaintance of anyone among the Russians there. The Russian girl looked after Madame Stahl, and besides that, she was as Kitty observed, on friendly terms with all the disabled who were seriously ill, and there were many of them at the springs, and looked after them in the most natural way. This Russian girl was not, as Kitty gathered, related to Madame Stahl, nor was she a paid attendant. Madame Stahl called her Varenka and other people called her Mademoiselle Varenka. Apart from the interest Kitty took in this girl's relations with Madame Stahl and with other unknown persons, Kitty, as often happened, felt an inexplicable attraction to Mademoiselle Varenka and was aware when their eyes met that she too liked her. Of Mademoiselle Varenka, one would not say that she had passed her first youth, but she was, as it were, a creature without youth. She might have been taken for nineteen or for thirty. If her features were criticised separately, she was handsome rather than plain, in spite of the sickly hue of her face. She would have been a good figure, too, if it had not been for her extreme thinness and the size of her head, which was too large for her medium height. But she was not likely to be attractive to men. She was like a fine flower, already past its bloom and without fragrance, though the petals were still unwithered. Moreover, she would have been unattractive to men also from the lack of just what Kitty had too much of, of the suppressed fire of vitality and the consciousness of her own attractiveness. She always seemed absorbed in work, about which there could be no doubt, and so it seemed she could not take interest in anything outside it. It was just this contrast with her own position that was for Kitty the great attraction of Mademoiselle Varenka. Kitty felt that in her, in her manners of life, she would find an example of what she was now so painfully seeking. Interest in life, a dignity in life, apart from the worldly relations of girls with men which so revolted Kitty, and appeared to her now as a shameful hawking about of goods in search of purchases. The more attentively Kitty watched her unknown friend, 
the more convinced she was this girl was the perfect creature, and the more eagerly she wished to make her acquaintance. The two girls used to meet several times a day, and every time they met, Kitty's eyes said, Who are you? What are you? Are you really the exquisite creature I imagine you to be? But for goodness's sake, don't suppose, her eyes added, that I would force my acquaintance on you. I simply admire you and like you. I like you too, and you're very, very sweet, and I should like you better still if I had time, answered the eyes of the unknown girl. Kitty saw indeed that she was always busy. Either she was taking the children of a Russian family home from the springs, or fetching a shawl for a sick lady and wrapping her up in it or trying to interest an irritable person, or selecting and buying cakes for tea for someone. Soon after the arrival of the Shabatskys, there appeared in the morning crowd at the springs two persons who attracted universal and unfavorable attention. These were a tall man with a stooping figure and huge hands, in an old coat too short for him, with black, simple, and yet terrible eyes, and a pockmarked, kind-looking woman, very badly and tastelessly dressed. Recognizing these persons as Russians, Kitty had already, in her imagination, began constructing a delightful and touching romance about them. But the princess, having ascertained from the visitor's list that this was Nikolai Levin and Maria Nikolaevna, explained to Kitty what a bad man this Levin was, and all her fancies about these two people vanished. Not so much from what her mother told her, as from the fact that it was Konstantin's brother. This pair suddenly seemed to Kitty intensely unpleasant. This Levin, with his continual twitching of his head, aroused in her now an irrepressible feeling of disgust. It seemed to her that his big, terrible eyes, which persistently pursued her, expressed a feeling of hatred and contempt, and she tried to avoid meeting them. Chapter 31 It was a wet day. It had been raining all the morning, and many people with their parasols had flocked into the arcades. Kitty was walking there with her mother and the Moscow colonel, smart and jaunty in his European coat, bought ready-made at Frankfurt they were walking on one side of the arcade, trying to avoid Levin, who was walking on the other side. Varenka, in her dark dress, in a black hat 
with a turned-down brim, was walking up and down the whole length of the arcade with a blind French woman, and every time she met Kitty, they exchanged friendly glances. Mama, couldn't I speak to her, said Kitty, watching her unknown friend and noticing that she was going up to the spring and that she might come there together. Oh, if you want to so much, I'll find out about her first and make her acquaintance myself, answered her mother. What do you see in her out of the way? A companion she must be. If you like, I'll make acquaintance with Madame Stahl. I used to know her belle sœur, added the princess, lifting her head haughtily. Kitty knew that the princess was offended that Madame Stahl had seemed to avoid making her acquaintance. Kitty did not insist. How wonderfully sweet she is, she said, gazing at Varenka just as she handed a glass to the French woman. Look how natural and sweet it all is. It's so funny to see your engelments, said the princess. No, we'd better go back, she added, noticing Levin coming towards them with his companion and a German doctor to whom he was talking very noisily and angrily. They turned to go back, when suddenly they heard not noisy talk, but shouting. Levin stopped short, was shouting at the doctor, and the doctor too was excited. A crowd gathered about them. The princess and Kitty beat a hasty retreat, while the colonel joined the crowd to find out what was the matter. A few minutes later, the colonel overtook them. What was it? inquired the princess. Scandalous and disgraceful, answered the colonel. The one thing to be dreaded is meeting Russians abroad. That tall gentleman was abusing the doctor, flinging all sorts of insults at him because he wasn't treating him quite as he liked and he began waving his stick at him. It's simply a scandal. Oh, how unpleasant, said the princess. Well, and how did it end? Luckily at that point, the one in the mushroom hat intervened. A Russian lady, I think she is, said the colonel. Mademoiselle Varenka, asked Kitty. Yes, yes. She came to the rescue before anyone. She took the man by the arm and led him away. There, Mama, said Kitty. You wonder that I'm enthusiastic about her. The next day, as she watched her unknown friend, Kitty noticed that Mademoiselle Varenka was already on the same terms with Levin and his companion as with her other protégés. She went up to them, entered into conversation with them, 
and served as an interpreter for the woman who could not speak any foreign languages. Kitty began to entreat her mother still more urgently to let her make friends with Varenka, and disagreeable as it was to the princess to seem to take the first step in wishing to make acquaintance of Madame Stahl, who thought fit to give herself airs, she made inquiries about Varenka, and, having ascertained particulars about her, tending to prove that there could be no harm, though little good in the acquaintance, she herself approached Varenka and made acquaintance with her. Choosing a time when her daughter had gone to the spring, while Varenka had stopped outside the baker's, the princess went up to her. Allow me to make your acquaintance, she said with her dignified smile. My daughter has lost her heart to you, she said. Possibly you do not know me. I am. That feeling is more than reciprocal, princess, Varenka answered hurriedly. What a good deed you did yesterday to our poor compatriot, said the princess. Varenka flushed a little. I don't remember. I don't think I did anything, she said. Why, you saved that Levin from disagreeable consequences. Yes, Sir Compan called me, and I tried to pacify him. He's very ill, and was dissatisfied with the doctor. I'm used to looking after such people. Yes, I've heard you live at Meton with your aunt, I think, Madame Stahl. I used to know her, Belle Secure. No, she's not my aunt. I call her Mama, but I am not related to her. I was brought up by her, answered Varenka, flushing a little again. This was so simply said, and so sweet was the truthful and candid expression of her face that the princess saw why Kitty had taken such a fancy to her. Well, and what's this Levin going to do? asked the princess. He's going away, answered Varenka. At that instant, Kitty came up from the spring, beaming with delight that her mother had become acquainted with her unknown friend. Well, See, Kitty, your intense desire to make friends with Mademoiselle, Varenka. Varenka put in smiling. That's what everyone calls me. Kitty blushed with pleasure, and slowly, without speaking, pressed her new friend's hand, which did not respond to her pressure, but lay motionless in her hand. The hand did not respond to her pressure, but the face of Mademoiselle Varenka glowed with a soft, glad, though rather mournful smile that showed large but handsome teeth. I have long wished for this too, she said. But you are so busy. Oh no, I'm not at all busy, answered Varenka. 
but at that moment, she had to leave her new friend, because two little Russian girls, children of other acquaintances, ran up to her. Varenka, Mama's calling, they cried, and Varenka went off after them.